0: Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing transition to home after a rehab stay with our guest, Krista Covell-Pearson. Thanks for listening.
1: Thanks, everyone, for being here. My name is Dennis Cleary, and I'm joined today by Krista Cavell pearson and she's going to talk to us again about um, transitioning home after a rehabilitation Day. So thanks so much for joining us, Krista. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in this topic of having a positive discharge home?
2: Sure. So I am an occupational therapist and have been an OT for about 22 years. I started out in skilled nursing facilities, home care, hospitals, really traditional settings. And when I was first starting out in occupational therapy, I felt like when I was discharging my patients home, they would go home with home care and every need would be taken care of. And then once I got a little bit more experience under my belt, I realized that's not always the case, that there's a lot of things that patients still need help with and a lot of details that get missed sometimes in Mm -hmm. a good discharge. So I started working with a neuropsychologist actually that really valued occupational therapy in the home And that sort of grew into a private practice um, that I did on the side many times. But it really helped with good discharge planning to home because I ended up following a lot of my patients home. And then I really Mm -hmm. was able to see what we can do better on the inpatient side and when we come in on the home care side to make that a better transition for the patient. So overall, it's just as a much better quality of an experience for a patient
1: great and so you have your own company and we'll talk talk about that a little bit later in the podcast um and i, I have a good friend of mine I, so male ot's were a funny lot um we sent we tend to to move everywhere together so he's one of my ot classmates uh and we talk most days of the week actually and so he's doing home health now and occasionally he'll be between visits and he'll He'll just give me a call and uh, not disclosing any HIPAA information, but certainly these interesting situations that sometimes uh, he finds himself in in the the home. So can you talk a little bit about, like, do you think that occupational therapy practitioners might have some misunderstanding, especially those that are that are more, um, you know, sniff or or rehab based uh, about the reality that many of our patients go home to?
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's so much that OTs have like a misperception. I think there's just so much that happens when a patient goes home and some of those things we can't anticipate, but I think we can open up our you know, landscape a little bit, if you will, when we're looking at discharge and what does that really look like? We don't want to just look at showering, dressing, hygiene and grooming, you know, those types of things, but really long-term, what is going to be going on for this patient? Because most people are pretty motivated to do beyond that, so we need to be Mm -hmm. planning for that, even if they're not ready. There's just a lot of details and conversations and IADL areas to address um, with patients that I think we miss, and some of that has to do with time too we only Mm -hmm. get so much time with our patients and so sure we would love to cover all these things but we feel really strapped for time a lot of the time
1: yeah absolutely so um you did start your own company so that's pretty exciting can you talk a little bit about um how what you're doing is maybe different than a traditional home health company might be
2: Yeah. um, We do what we call mobile outpatient services or community-based treatments. It's a little bit more commonplace, but it's certainly not mainstream yet. Um, It was very, very new when I was doing it. I only knew a small handful of therapists, and now I know a lot more. But really what it is, is especially as OTs, you know, we value the environment that patients are moving around in so much and it influences our treatments so very much that it's important that we're there in people's homes and at their jobs and on the city bus and we can actually problem solve and do really context-based treatment, you know, that is very impactful for the patient. So that's what we do that's a little bit different. So we do physical, occupational speech therapy. We also have fitness trainers. Um, For anybody that's ever worked in skilled nursing and worked with like restorative nursing, um, that's why we brought in the fitness training piece to try to help support patients after they come off of therapy services. And we're a little bit more a la carte for patients. They can pick and choose what services they want. We're not in there, you know, as a group, like a home care Stay that kind of thing, um, and then we can do maintenance therapy, which is a little bit different. And then we can come in and out as patients need or want us to. So there's a little more flexibility with us.
1: Gotcha. So how do you offer those a la carte services? Is there sort of a, a menu that people choose from? Is it just part of the occupational profile, and you're you're talking to them about different different things you can offer? What what's that negotiation, or how to how do you decide what goals, or how does the the that, and I guess you call it a, a, is it a patient? Is it a client? Um, how do you refer to, to the folks that you work with? We
2: actually call them patients. We tried for a long time to transition it to client, but because in the medical world, everybody calls them patients, we just went back to calling them patients to make it easier, mostly for doctors and things like that. Um, as far as You know, figuring out what a patient needs, usually we'll get a referral or a phone call or an inquiry and somebody is being referred for a specific service. So let's say, you know, we want physical therapy and this is why. And then when the PT goes in, they might screen for other issues. Maybe they're having, you know, problems with their ADLs and bring in OT. Other times physicians will just send over orders for everything. And then we sit down with the patients once we do the eval, just really typical, you know, standard practice. That we run through all the issues that we're seeing and then we talk about what a good treatment plan would look like and set it up from there. So it's just nice because, you know, if a patient is feeling really overwhelmed because they have PT, OT and speech coming in and maybe they're going to an outpatient service for something else, you know, we can say, okay, well, you know, maybe PT is going to hang back for a while and they'll come in when OT is done and we can be a little bit more creative and I let the patients call the shots a little bit, as long as they're safe and still making progress.
1: So can you talk a little bit about, you know, there's, you know, OTs on both sides of the OT practitioners on, you know, the the inpatient side and then the home health side. Um, can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. um, what an inpatient therapist could do to make the transition home a little bit more seamless?
2: Yeah, I have a few ideas, actually. And one of those things really just starts with conversation and having a little bit more in-depth conversation and asking a lot more questions or hypothetical situations. For example, I had a patient that When he would pull into his garage and then by the time he would get out of his garage and go to the door, he would have the door shut and then the the light would be off above the garage and he then would lose his balance because he couldn't see and it was dark. So sometimes I'll even use examples from other patients like that. So, you know, what would you do if you were in this situation? And then you get a better idea of maybe how prepared your patient is in emergency situations, Um, talking about other areas of the house or even times of year. So maybe if it's, you know, getting closer to the holidays, where do you keep your holiday decorations? How are you going to get them down? Just those conversations. And you can even have those conversations while you're walking down the hall or going, you know, down to the rehab gym or to take a shower. They can be sort of casual but very helpful and give you some good talking points. And then I also really like to do as close to a simulation as we possibly can. And that's tough sometimes because we're sitting in You know, places that are very accessible and bright, and the lights are on and the hallways are clear. And so it's nice to go in and maybe you make a mess in your therapy kitchen and you have them clean it up or talk about what their kitchen looks like. Maybe they have a galley kitchen, maybe it's really big and open, but simulating as much as you possibly can at home. And that's going to increase the patient's confidence too to go back to their normal environment. I also like to share things about people that are that my patients can relate to. So if I have a patient going home and maybe has a new amputation, I can talk about a patient without giving, you know, um, private information away, but to talk about what was successful or what was difficult. And that can help too, just to help that patient not feel so alone and then also getting them plugged into organizations that maybe they have similarities with. So for example, in Northern Colorado, we have a really strong Parkinson's support group. So if I'm on the inpatient side, make that com- make that call when you're there or pop open the website on your device with your patient while they're taking a rest break so they feel a little bit more comfortable just to start linking them back to the outside world. Because when they're in an inpatient setting, it's really tough and then that leans to you know knowing your community resources giving you know names phone numbers helping them make those calls and then um, also just doing things that are as close to real life as possible if they take their showers in the evening that might be hard because you don't work in the evening but maybe make that your last visit of the day and see how tired they are when I worked in skilled nursing, we used to do a lot of meal prep for safety training and, you know, everything that we do. We would also do frozen meals and we would make a meal. They would get to invite a couple other residents in that they wanted to eat with or their family. And then we also had them make a double batch so that they could freeze it and take it home with them. So they have a meal there when they get home, you know, so it's just really being practical and thinking long term and. Um, And it it makes it more fun, and then it it gets that patient to really start thinking a little bit more analytically about going home. And I always tell my patients, that threshold is not magic. You know, you're not going to be all better when you go over that threshold, so we need to be prepared. And just really having those conversations is helpful. And then I feel like your patients trust you more, too, when you're being as realistic as possible about
0: Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just head over to OccupationalTherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12 This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to OccupationalTherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with OccupationalTherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today.
1: Yeah, and I, I know there's uh, an, an inpatient hospital that I'm uh, pretty familiar with that actually moved um, some of their, you know, that it seems like it used to be the last night before they would go home was the, the night they went to the apartment and then, you know, had everything. But but when they found that there were, there were issues on that last night, um, so they started to move it you know, so that it was earlier in the stay, so that um, it just, as you said, real life, you know, as, you know, the closer we can get to being authentic with the the interventions that we're providing, I think the most more successful the therapy can be, and also the, you know, the, um, I think you get a little bit better buy-in from from the patients you're working with, because they <laughs> they can't just say, well, I'll do different at home, because, you know, if they've had a really uh, do some of those things that they're going to be doing at home it helps them take that um, a little bit not more seriously but i, I think they, they they and then their their support uh, folks can see that as is really being a little bit more imperative um,
2: it helps too to run a little bit of interference with the nursing staff you know because they a lot of times have all these things they need to get done and sometimes we just need to say you know, we want the patient to ask for their meds when it when they're due. We're having them watch it. It's not that we're saying if the patient doesn't call for their meds, don't give it to them. But just to really educate the nursing staff too about the importance of backing off a little bit, letting the patients have more independence, and then not telling your nursing staff just to do that, but to have a good team conversation about the why behind that, um, so that you guys are all working together towards the same goals.
1: Yeah, cuz I think that you know that's part that's part of who we are I think as occupational therapists but um it's not how every profession is and so um you know just I think you know the more we can help them uh see our way of living no, I'm just teasing but the the more that we get everybody on the same page you know I I think it helps to improve outcomes um so what are some other areas that you think that occupational therapy practitioners can address During that impatient time, that sometimes you might see, or they may have missed, um, as they're getting people ready to to transition home.
2: Mm -hmm. A few different things, like getting the mail. Um, There's a lot of times that's not brought up. Um, Anything that has to do with IADLs. So we sometimes we'll talk about, you know who's going to bring you your groceries? Well, who's going to put them away? And is that long-term? So to really dive deep into those IADL needs. Also lighting. And if somebody has low vision to make sure that we are addressing that in addition to, you know, maybe they've had a hip replacement or whatever. But if they have low vision, get some education in there too about what's going to help with lighting and how to set things up at home because it all is connected. And then also emergency planning is a big one. So not just, you know, do you have a life alert, but who's attached to the other side? And does somebody, if it's a family member, do they realize they're basically on call all the time? So what happens if their son is like, yeah, I'm the emergency contact, but he let's say he travels a lot. So then he's on an airplane and then that calls and it doesn't go to anybody. So those are the things that you just, I feel like we have to start big and then look at those little details and it's really what our skill set is too because of our training and activity analysis and we really just have to get down into that and when we're in an inpatient setting it's so hard to to dot all the i's and cross all the t's because everybody is so different um and i think that running through a daily routine and really hour by hour what are you doing and where are you doing it can be helpful on the inpatient side to talk about, and you know, to pull some of those things together, and even incorporate those things into your goals. So, if they need to get the mail, simulate that, and you know, are they going to have a walker where their keys are, and they're fumbling with their keys in the mailbox, you know, or they have to walk down the long driveway to open it up? I mean, there's a lot of different things that contribute to things that we just don't talk about on the impatient side.
1: Yeah, I had a um, one of my former coworkers is an OT and has. Two sisters that are at OT and a, I think there's a, a, psychologist and and a nurse in the family and I, you know their mom went into an inpatient stay and. Um, Mom said that there were you know three steps into the house, but it's she was in from Pittsburgh, so there were three steps at to the top, but there were you know, like twenty steps to get to that three steps because they were getting ready to discharge and and the family said no, we're we're not discharging and you know we're able to to really show that um, mom was not quite ready to get up those twenty steps uh, to get back into the house. so um, other other things that you think um, might be uh, important in terms of thinking about uh, for that occupational therapy practitioner as as folks are getting ready to go home.
2: Yeah, I think you bring up a, a great point. And, that, and knowing that, sometimes we don't get exactly the information we think we're getting. So I had a similar, I had a patient that said, I said, well, when you go in, do you use your front door? Yes, I do. Um, okay, how many stairs? Four or five? Well, come to find out the stairs had were rotten the wood was rotten so they weren't safe so he was actually using the back door and that was a completely different setup but he didn't share that with me and so sometimes things get lost in translation but to your point too with the stairs if you have a family member that can bring in photographs text them if they're comfortable with that, email it, you know, make sure you're HIPAA compliant and all of that stuff. Um, Or videos, or if you can even do a FaceTime call, there's free applications that can be HIPAA compliant. We do that quite often when we have patients that live in the mountains and we can't get to them, but we want to see their house. And it's so helpful um, just to say, oh my gosh, like, yeah, you, you've got a great setup there, but you've got all your cat litter is in the way you know things like that that people just don't talk about so pictures videos super duper helpful to see that and then one of the big things that I think is glossed over a lot or just altogether skipped is driving and if we know we're sending somebody home and they have been a driver we really do need to address that and we also know that driving is one of the most meaningful activities of daily living to most people so people want to drive and even if they're not cleared to drive yet or anything like that we have to have those conversations with with patients for sure
1: and it's hard sometimes to get physicians on board with that as well because every you know they Mm -hmm. they want their high ratings when people leave not that's not why they do it although maybe um so so that you know they um so it, it can be really difficult i know actually one of the the first patients that i dealt with um, or that I was treating after I graduated had some driving issues that, that I had to deal with and was, it was sort of uh, the rehab manager uh, really saw it as my way of learning to be a therapist you know that how do you negotiate this with with this individual and with the family and with the department of transportation and all those sorts of fun things so um that was something i I was perhaps not well well prepared for when i was in school but um you know it's it's an important part of of what we're doing and I, i you know obviously it's it's a huge loss uh when people stop driving i know my my dad when uh we ended up he went through a a driver rehab program, and they were the ones that made the decision that he shouldn't be driving. And you know, even to the uh, you know the last couple of weeks he was alive, he still said, you know, my mom should not be driving. That there's no way that anyone could have passed the the driver test that that he was put through. So, um, but obviously, just such a a loss uh, for people when that happens. So, other ideas about transportation when when driving isn't an option, or how do you connect people to resources around that?
2: Yeah, that's another really good conversation because, um, you know, giving up driving is very emotional. People can feel very vulnerable, very attacked. Um, They don't want to burden, because you can, even if the daughter or the son or somebody says, well, I'll take you, mom, it's no big deal. They don't want to ask. And sometimes you do just want to jump in the car by yourself and go. So um, again, it's having those conversations and then also really validating the emotional pieces that come with it. And it's also helpful if you can have that conversation maybe before somebody's having to give up driving, like what will you do if you do have to give up driving at some point, what are your options? And then if you are talking about it and it's already happened that somebody isn't able to drive, it's really important that you're, you have a good overview of what's available in your community and everybody's community is so different. We have some driving resources here, but they're not great. And so it's tough for me to recommend them sometimes with competence because I know how frustrating it's going to be for the patient, but I can share that with them and talk about how to brainstorm around it and solve some of the things. Um, We've also practiced with patients from like, you know, any sort of transit system that's door to door. We've done Uber with patients, the bus, community, um, volunteers, hiring a driver, anything like that. And sometimes there's really no great option. And so sometimes just processing that with your patient can really help. Um, And then once they start doing something differently, it's oftentimes not as awful as they feel like it's going to be. But sometimes it is, and they're pretty upset about it for a long time. So but being able to go through all of that with a patient is important.
1: Yeah, that was my dad. Absolutely. He, um, he was, he was a, uh, a sales salesman. So he sold, uh, carpet was his thing. So he would go around to different carpet stores and just drove throughout the state. And he, he loved doing that. And, um, even in retirement, you know, still really appreciated driving, but one of his big activities is he would, you know, go and, um, work at a, uh, uh soup kitchen and and help give uh you know make meals and that sort of stuff and so some of the other guys that were in the soup kitchen you know it started to become what he would what they would do my mom i think would drop him off and then they would bring him over for that would go out to lunch and then they would drop him so it was trying to to negotiate um you know what that that can look like but definitely i think took a a, a toll on his mental health he was still always an optimistic guy but i think definitely lost a lot of lost a sense of of, uh, of himself because you know obviously it was a very meaningful occupation as it is to me so um, hopefully uh, when I get to that point I will be less dramatic for my child than than my father was was for me so
2: the research says that um you know, we're at an age now where most people will outlive their ability to drive. And that's sort of the first time in history that we're seeing that. So it will become more and more of a problem as people live longer. So these conversations are really good to have even now. And I challenge therapists, even in your own personal life, like, what would you do, even if it's just a temporary thing, if you could not drive for 30 days, and you think about your life, if you have kids, or you have a job, or you volunteer, like, what would you do? And resources come into play. And I think that can help drum up a little bit of empathy sometimes from the therapist, because it's very easy when we're driving back and forth to work to not really think about how hard it really is to to live in the United States and not drive. So unless you're like downtown New York City, it's pretty tough.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's, and even with some of the, the paratransit and other services that are available, the The federal law is that it, you know, the local, the the paratransit services should be, you know, at the same level as the typical public transportation services. So if you're in an area that doesn't have great public transportation, then chances are the paratransit services are not going to be that great either. So, yeah. So uh, true. Some, someday we're, you know, hopefully we'll continue to make some progress on on public transportation so that it's mm-hmm. a little more accessible for everybody. We need
2: some OTs in that space advocating. We do. And actually, and I, 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 was,
1: I was part of a group uh, at the Ohio State University where we were doing some work with the local transportation agency that was actually pretty, uh, they were uh, I think their hearts were in the right place and they were starting to put resources to, to do that. And um, we always had our students go down and look at their mobility center and, and to kind of see the work they were doing. So they would hopefully come out having a, a good understanding of the role that public transportation plays for, for so many people, you know, and especially folks with disabilities. So, um, so I know from personal experience, my, uh, my mom, uh, once when she was coming home from a, I can't remember if it was a skilled nursing facility or an inpatient rehab stay. Um, she had, you know, the the therapist wrote orders for OT-PT. And of course the PT came and the home health company on their own had changed OT to a, a, a nursing assistant twice a week to help with showers. And so of course I, I called uh, and said, um, we already had a nursing assistant that could help with the showers. We needed the OT to be there. Um, so can you talk a little bit, so hopefully I know something about, um, you know, talking to a home health company to get uh, services for my mom. But can you talk a little bit about why sometimes that happens and maybe what we can do uh, either as either an inpatient uh, therapist or as a home health therapist uh, to ensure that folks get the the services that they need?
2: Yeah, I think it's something that it's almost like a rite of passage. When you become an OT, you're just basically signing up that you're going to be educating people what occupational therapy is for the rest of your life, (laughs) because it's just something that is a big question mark for a lot of people. And I think it starts on the inpatient side to talk about the role of OT with your patients so that they value your role in their life and not just, oh, I had an OT and she made me make a scrambled egg. you know I hear that all the time. And so, you know, but advocating what OT does start there and then advocating with your social workers, nursing staff, agencies that you work with, and really also not just saying a patient needs OT, but why they need OT and where that, where our skill level comes in. And that's a huge part of being an OT and giving patients what they need. And then if you work in an agency, it really does, it's our professional responsibility to make sure that we show our value because we can do a lot of great things especially in home care but if nobody sees us they don't really understand what we're doing so educating your administrators your your care team all of that and then some of the things that come into play too are um, staffing, especially right now, if they don't have an OT, then maybe they, you know, farm it out to something else that they think is going to foot the bill. But a CNA certainly isn't going to do what an OT is going to do. Um, sometimes insurance restrictions will come into play. And then sometimes a patient will refuse because they don't value what OT does. People tend to gear more towards, well, I just want to walk. I just want to be stronger. I'll do PT. I don't need this. But really to um, get the language out there and and figure out what your elevator speech is for OT so that people are like, oh, I actually really need you. And we've noticed here that with some of those conversations that we've had with folks, once it clicks and they really get it, it's like they they refer to OT all the time because they're like, well, we we at least need OT. Let's get OT in there. And that's a really good thing, but it takes work to keep OT kind of front and center sometimes.
1: So we... <laughs> we love our our physical therapy friends and our nursing friends um, and our speech language pathology friends Um, but sometimes uh, they can become gatekeepers so is there language that you might use or you uh you do use to help ensure that there isn't a gate or if it if there is a gate that the gate is typically swung open so that the the patient has access to occupational therapy services
2: yeah and i think with anything it really is about the relationship that you have with those individuals and to nurture that relationship get to know them let them get to know you that's really important and then also provide education that has some you know legs to it, so to speak. So if you have a great article, or I just read a really great article in OT practice about um, wheelchairs and working with an ATP, I am going to share that with some of the therapists I work with, because it really describes the role that we have. And it's, it's a good piece of, you know, literature. And so I think just staying on top of things and sharing information, most of us as therapists, PTs, speech therapists, nurses, we're all, you know, kind of we want to learn, we want the information. So we as OTs can just do a good job and give that to them and give them data, give them research, you know, you can offer to give um, presentations too. And we do that with a lot of home care agencies here. We'll come in and talk about our role around low vision or incontinence because it's like, oh, we didn't know you could do all of this stuff. And that kind of gets that gate to be a little bit, less closed. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but you know what I mean. And then just to be really that bridge um, to, so that other people can walk across the bridge and see what you do and understand what you do and use case studies too. Or if you have a patient that you've done something really awesome with, or even just spend you know, successful in any way, share that because those stories about our patients really go a long way with other professionals.
1: Having the patient talk to the PT or the the nurse about you know the types of things that you're doing and yeah. you know hopefully the, the difference that that's making. Um, so I think your business is really interesting um, because you're you're doing this community based occupational therapy that um, I've I've actually always been fortunate enough to to be able to do myself um, and have been able to do different types of things and working really much more when I practice as an occupational therapist, as a consultant and not doing quite as much direct treatment, but it's always in the the community. Um, Do you feel like that makes a difference in terms of the types of services that you provide, the type of relationship that you have uh, with the patients you're serving?
2: I do. There is something that happens, and this happens with home care too, but when you're invited into somebody's home, it just changes things. There's a little bit more of an intimacy there right out of the gate because you're seeing where they live and, you know, you're going into their bathroom and, uh, you know, their bedroom. You don't even do that with your neighbors, you know, so um, that changes, changes things for sure with a relationship. It also, I think, gives the patient a little bit more, um, I don't want to say power. That's the wrong word, but they, it is their house. I mean, they can tell you to leave, whereas if they tell you to leave their room at the hospital, you don't have to leave the whole hospital. So um, I think that changes some things too. And you can be so client-centered that way and you can really see you know a daughter that comes in and out you know five times during your visit because she lives downstairs Um, or you know their their cat is all over the place when they're trying to take a shower you see all this stuff that you can really just create these really beautiful dynamic treatment plans and that's my favorite thing about being in the home is just you know you kind of just get into their life in a real personal level And it's really beneficial, too, when you have somebody that has some sort of chronic issue going on. So let's say, you know, ALS or Parkinson's. A lot of times they need different supportive services at different times. And so when they when you've already been in there and, you know, then eight months goes by and they can call you and you can come back and they don't have to explain their whole story again. It's I love that. And so I have patients that I've seen for years and not consistently of course but off and on and then sometimes until the end of life and even then sometimes you know we'll treat patients when they're on hospice and it just is a really beautiful thing and you know i I learn just as much from my patients as they learn from me for sure just by being part of their lives
1: so we actually have a number of international occupational therapists and non-occupational therapists um who listen to the podcast and so um for those ot's uh from uh, other countries um, in the united states occupational therapists typically are delivering care within uh, institutions so hospitals clinics schools skilled nursing facilities you know different things but typically within kind of these these four walls um, but i think in my experience uh, international occupational therapy is a little bit more community based um, and and occurs much more frequently you know, in, in the community setting. Um, have you modeled any of your approach on any international models, or have you kind of been able to take advantage of, of seeing what some folks are doing uh, in other countries?
2: I have not. I have had actually a couple students from that were from out of the country, but nothing, not a specific model or, or organization that we've modeled things after, um, but I, I I love some of the things that I get to read about other countries and how they're doing things. I think there's so much that we can learn from them. Um, For me with Covelcare here, it's just really been a little bit of an amoeba of what our communities have needed. And just sort of responding to the need and not even thinking about it sometimes, maybe as I should, like long-term, what, where we'd go in with this, but just really like, oh, you have this need, we can help you, no problem, and figuring it out from there. So, but yeah, it's, it's I wish, I hope that more and more communities will have mobile outpatient services available because it's so good.
1: Yeah, I was thinking, especially um, in the United Kingdom and in Canada, uh, Ireland as well, they have, you know, occupational therapists that, for falls you know um will ride along on the ambulance and so you know sometimes they'll make a decision not to you know if nothing's broken and uh you know that instead of transporting them to the to the emergency department (laughs) i don't know how the occupational therapist gets home or if they have a a separate car or how that works but the the ot sort of dropped off and does you know a, a home evaluation right there and and can make some recommendations in terms of um you know you just figure how how expensive every trip to the emergency department is for our our healthcare system and also you know how stressful it is uh for the the patient to have to go into to to go through all the the you know the prodding and the poking and the you know possibly you know a couple nights in the hospital or whatever it might be so i think we do there's a lot of really cool models that are out there that um you know, are starting to you know. There's, I know in in some hospitals the the occupational therapist or physical therapist is, you know, in the emergency department. So, um, but for some other places they've they've kind of taken it one more step, which is is kind of exciting. So that could maybe be your next amoeba amoeba move. Yeah. You know, you could, you know. <laughs> The good old days where they had like the light they put on top of the car, Yeah, you know, it was like, yeah. a, you know, the detective was having to chase yeah. somebody down. You could get the Covell Care car and just kind of put that on top. And then I like um, where you're going with this. Sounds yeah, like a good plan. Absolutely. Um, all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. um, what's it like when you're so I know some of the, the care that you're providing is is really in the community. Um, are there kind of, you know, like if you're doing bus training, those sorts of things. um how is that different? Are there any special considerations that you need to, to think about if you're an occupational therapist interested in in following your, your amoeba model, I guess? Is
2: yeah. Um, well, you know, from a logistics point of view, you just want to make sure that you, you know, have liability insurance and all of that kind of stuff when you're out and about. But if anything, it just really changes your um, perspective sometimes when you're working with patients. I had a patient, I've told this story before, um, several times, because it's just as eye-opening. She had had a neck fusion, had decided not to drive, and um, she spoke English as a second language, um, and she was very short. So when the transit system came, the stairs, you know, they're really big and tall, and then the way that her house is situated, the bus was sort of lopsided. So for her to get in, she was really having to go up a big hill and she lost her balance and fell backwards. Luckily I was behind her and she got on the bus and the bus driver was, you know, a really loud guy, a big guy and talking a million miles a minute. She didn't know what he was saying. And she felt, I could tell she was so nervous and it cost her $3. So she gave him her $3 and we were on our way to the drugstore to pick up a prescription and he went a different way. And so she became, almost into a panic and thought he was kidnapping us and I thought oh my gosh like if I hadn't been here she would just be out of her mind and so I told her I said no 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 this is it's we're safe We're it's fine it's fine but it took her a long time to be willing to do it again and so that was part of the therapeutic process but had I just coached her and not done it with her I wouldn't have anticipated any of that stuff happening so that it does really change things and then you know things just happen out in the community that you don't expect and it really keeps us on our toes as OTs I was with a OT assistant once and we had a group of patients that had we had taken them to Walmart and one of the women was in her power chair and she had gotten connected to a clothing rack and it was going down the Walmart with her. So it's like, oh no. So I'm like, okay, well add this to the goal list. You know, we can't be doing this. So those are the things you're just like, oh my gosh, like this I can't believe this is even happening. Um and then when i t- brought her attention to it, she said, I didn't I didn't do that. <laughs> so okay. Um but yeah, it, it definitely keeps us on our toes.
1: Sure. Absolutely. So do you um tend to bring tools with you in the community or when you're doing home health visits, or do you really try to rely on mm-hmm sort of the natural environment the things that people have access to
2: both i usually will just go into my visits not with a whole lot of equipment with me Mm -hmm. um and then i do have a couple of different bags of tricks that i keep in the back of my car you know that if i need things so duct tape puff paint bump dots all the ot you know stuff that we need um paper markers all the things um but no, I don't really bring a lot of stuff. And then we have a really great organization here that we can get um, adaptive equipment. Sometimes it's used, but pretty cheap. And so um, we can take that, you know, and, and you know, trial things out with patients and stuff. And, and they're really good about working with us. So that's always nice, too. But, you know, I keep a few of those things in the car.
1: Nice. I like to have uh, duct tape on the, <laughs> like, if you use the, um, uh, like, paper, like, baking paper you can put duct tape on that and then you don't need to have Mm -hmm. the whole roll Mm -hmm. but you can just pull off what you need Mm.
2: i didn't know that
1: it's my little uh, duct tape trick for you um i've never done it but you can probably do like the the back side of velcro once you pull it off you can probably do that as well so that way you know you don't Mm. you don't need to have the whole roll with you all the time so
2: that's an awesome idea thank (laughs) you i have
1: some some in my bag with a couple other weird things just you know it's it's fun to go through tsa sometimes because they 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 wonder what you're doing. So um, yes,
2: yes. I always said I my aunt's an OT, and she always had so much stuff in the back of her car. And I always said I am never going to be like that. <laughs> I, oh, famous last words.
1: <laughs> I know. Well, I'm a. I still practice a little bit, but primarily I'm a researcher. But I have about five or six giant tubs down in our basement, and to, on top of the tubs that I have at my office. Um, and so, occasion, my wife. Is wondering why I still have all those things, and it's been, it's a, it's been a lifetime of getting those things together. So um, it's gonna, gonna continue. She has three sets of china that she's inherited. So I, I figure that's always the, the trade off that uh, when she gets rid of her china, from I don't know somewhere that from someone she doesn't know then i'll get rid of one of my tubs so but so far i've been able to hold the hold on to the tubs um can you talk i mean it's like i just i think your practice is really cool um so some more examples of what um some real life examples of people that you've really made a difference in in their lives in terms of the services you're providing
2: yeah i i can one of my all-time favorite patients i know we're not supposed to have favorites but we do (laughs) and um I met him and then we saw each other off and on for about five years and he had a progressive neurological disorder, very much um, kind of a a man's man, just very um, tough, very prideful, was very, he was a physician, he was very well respected in the community, Um, just kind of everything he touched turned to gold all his life. And so he, going into this really vulnerable disease was devastating to him in a way that was different than a lot of patients that I work with and he and I ended up working together and then he lost a son um, very tragically and he was very stoic but um, eventually you know I took him off of billing insurance and all of that stuff and his wife asked if I would just come sometimes and visit him and I did I would bring my dog and sit with him and he finally one day just had kind of a release about his son and cried and sobbed and You know and and it if i hadn't had that relationship with him i don't know who he would have ever talked to you know or gotten to know and stuff and so it went way beyond ot for us became much more of just you know kind of that servant position of just wanting to serve and be there for him and then off and on you know we eventually remodeled his bathroom we eventually did a lift system um, he used to like to go in his backyard and he had a golf cart. So I figured out before he got too bad, I I figured out how we could get him into the back of the golf cart safely and strap him in there and get him to the backyard, which was not pretty, but we could do it. So that was fun. And those were great, great memories with him. I still talk to his wife and he's been gone a long time. And then I had another patient, um, she had ALS and it was pretty quick in its progression, but her life dream was to go to Alaska on a cruise. And she was just losing skills every few weeks. And, you know, she ended up inheriting a little bit of money. And I told her, I said, you know, if you want to go, I'll help you go. And so I researched all these different cruise ships that could accommodate all her equipment she hired two caregivers to go with her and her oxygen that was something I didn't realize certain airlines won't let you bring different types of oxygen tanks and the batteries on your power chair have to be a certain type I didn't know any of that so you know we figured all of that out and she got home and she got to go and she actually broke her ankle on the ship during a transfer um the caregivers were transferring her and the ship listed one direction. She went the other direction. And so they took her to the little doctor on the ship. And then they said, well, you have to get off at the next port and go to the hospital. And she said, I don't walk and I have ALS. I'm not going anywhere. So she stayed on the ship with her broken ankle and, you know, had it kind of bandaged up or whatever. But um, just to be able to help somebody get out there in the world it means a lot and you know you never forget those patients either even after they've passed um and then I just saw a patient recently via telehealth because she lives about two and a half hours away out of our geographical location she needs a power chair she had gotten one from a thrift store and it was just looked like it's been run over I mean it was in bad shape and um ended up working with a wheelchair vendor that could go to her house. I was on telehealth and then now she's also working with a PT via telehealth and then eventually we'll work with a personal trainer via telehealth. And she's so excited. She wants to cook and she loves to garden and, you know, she just doesn't have a lot of services where she lives. And so we've been able to get really creative with that. So those are really, that's the most rewarding part of the job is just to be able to help people live their life the way that they want to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I was fortunate enough that I um, was a, kind of a, not a rec therapist, but did kind of recreational stuff before I was an OT with people with disabilities. And one of the guys that I came to uh, know pretty well, um, I ended up working with the, uh, his, um, the person that was kind of in charge of his care, uh, it was a, a young man with, not young man, a, a gentleman with CP. And um, he, had a trust fund and so uh the the push comes to shove they asked me to kind of provide kind of be a, a rec therapist for him as an as an occupational therapist so we had the best time of just really being able to go and uh it's kind of my favorite experiences as, as an occupational therapist but you know going to, to football games and basketball games and uh, you know going out to dinner and and that sort of stuff and it's it's really um you know it's the the meaningful occupations of life that that really make it worth living so it's great when we're able to to have the freedom and I think it seems like um, some of the choices that you've made uh kind of give you a little bit more freedom uh to be able to do that so could you talk a little bit about the business aspect of of what you're doing um, and I know historically occupational therapists have been uh, a little bit reluctant i think to to bet on themselves and to start their own businesses but it seems like um it's changing a little bit and there are more ot's that are kind of um really doing that so do you have any tips on you know someone that might be uh looking to do covell care uh, outside of colorado uh, i'm sure that would be something different but um any tips on someone that's interested in starting their own business and kind of modeling what they're doing after what you're doing
2: yes and Um, I always start with personal development, you know, wherever you're at and figuring out a little bit more about yourself. That's always a good thing because we can be our worst enemy. We can get in our own way. And, you know, sometimes our thoughts are what keep us from doing certain things and just sort of how to manage those thoughts or insecurities that you might have or reasons why we don't step out as OTs. It's interesting because even in, you know, the university setting, So many different practitioners from like chiropractors, physical therapists, there's sort of an expectation that there'll be a small percentage or a percentage of them that will go out on their own. And it's not really expected of the OTs, um, which is sort of interesting. And so we come out of the gate not thinking that those are options for us. And then, but as we go through things, we're thinking, oh, I, I would like to do this. And there's nothing out there that looks like that. So then we shy away thinking we can't. And I think just getting comfortable with following the breadcrumbs of one, if you have a curiosity or you want to know more, you know, call someone like me or find someone in your community or even if they are a PT or somebody else, you know, that you can talk to about what it looks like for business. Um, most communities have a small business development center, which is government funded, and I learned so much from them, and the courses are affordable, sometimes free, you can get a business coach, and really helpful, because sometimes it's just language, too, that we don't, we don't know profit and loss, we don't know this and that, you know, and just learning those things, learning, 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 so those are a few things, and then also just being open-minded, that if you have um, a roadblock that comes up, is it really a roadblock or can you move around it, go over it, whatever it is? And as OTs, we're really good problem solvers. So that I think bodes well for being in business because there's always things that come up um that we have to, you know, get past. So I would recommend that. And then um just trusting yourself sometimes and knowing what's in your heart or what you can do and Also know that it's gonna be more challenging than you ever thought, but you can do it despite the challenges. And sometimes you just need to hear that, that you can do this, you can do this. Um, But yeah, I, I encourage OTs all day, every day, if they're interested in starting a business to please lean into that because we need OTs out there changing the playing field for our patients.
1: Yeah, and it, yeah, obviously there's a lot of Facebook pages and those sorts of things that have um, occupational therapists and others that are looking at kind of alternative ways to practice. I was fortunate enough, or not, or or silly enough, that I actually started my own company about nine months into practice, um, and was oh, wow. was yeah. So I would recommend that to everyone. Kind of kidding a little bit. I was I was older. I was 27, I believe. So I was, you know, uh, a little more seasoned at that point. Um, But it's fun even when uh, when I talk to former students that are interested, um, you know, doing taxes for whatever reason seems to be one of the big hang ups that people are afraid of having to do their quarterlies and, you know, doing their own taxes. And, you know, I started with a, a CPA to help with that process. Lots and lots of deductions when you when you have your own business is, uh, is, is nice. Um, but I actually worked with a physician at one point who also was kind of a, a private contractor. And he was like, I, I just use TurboTax. And I was like, really? I didn't think. I'm... And so I've been doing TurboTax now for the last 10 years or so. And it, it's pretty easy and the IRS has not um, shut me down yet. So I I guess that's a a good thing. Um, So what are the pros and cons of accepting insurance?
2: There's a lot of pros and there's a lot of cons. (laughs) Um, We'll start with the cons. The cons is that it's um, challenging and it's gotten more challenging in the last several years, mostly thanks to a lot of different types of plans like your Medicare Advantage plans and navigating that. Becoming a Medicare and or Medicaid contractor, depending on what um, state you're in, is not a difficult process. So I always tell therapists if they want to take insurance to start there. And um, the good thing, though, is that a lot of the patients, especially that we see with older adults, they um, have insurance and they want to use it. And so it opens up the door for lots of patients to come to you and and receive services we have a handful of therapists that um, come to us with their private practice and they are cash pay but then they have patients that take insurance and they just need somebody to help them with that and so we process their insurance for them that's no big deal i would recommend if you are going to bill insurance Remember that you are a therapist and not a medical biller, and you know a lot of therapists will start out and do their own, which is a great way to learn, but it takes so much time, and you really do want a biller. In my, you know, opinion, that really is a biller. So let them be the biller, and you can be the therapist and the entrepreneur. Um, so I would say the big pro is that you will have probably an easier time getting clients, and then. The big con is that you're going to have an expense to pay for the biller, but they usually pay for themselves with the collections that you get, Um, and then it just can be complicated and cumbersome sometimes and create a lot of paperwork. So that's, none of us really enjoy that, but um, we also see pediatrics, and what we find there is sometimes the... Um, insurance plans have such high deductibles and, and stuff that parents will opt to pay privately instead of go through their insurance. So there's their op- there's those options too. So you just have to figure that out. And then also to remember that if you are seeing a patient that is, um has Medicare as an occupational therapist, we're not allowed to opt out, meaning that they should be getting their services from an OT that's contracted with Medicare. There are ways around that, but you have to do it legally and with the right paperwork and stuff too. So sometimes I think therapists, just out of being naive, think, oh, I'll just do cash pay for all my older adults. Well, really professionally, we can't.
1: Um, so, how do you drum up business? <laughs> is, it, is it, you know, do you, are you cold calling physicians or? Um, skilled nursing or how do you how do you go about doing that
2: um well at different phases of the business it's been different so in the beginning it's a lot of just beating the streets and going out there making calls going to coffee joining groups Um, giving presentations, you name it, we did it. Um, Getting to know your community and also just finding things out, asking a lot of questions. It's not always about like, hey, we're Care, look at us. It's like, hey, who are you (laughs) and what do you do? Because I might need you for my patients. Um, And that was a lot and a lot of that. I mean, years of that. Now, um, it's different because we've you know, we've been around a while, and so people refer to us pretty consistently. And it's mostly um, hospitals, physicians, home care agencies, and social workers, um, caseworkers from the county. Um, and then sometimes, you know, people find us on the internet and send us an email, but usually somebody in their medical team.
1: So what are the risks and rewards for doing your own your own thing, starting your own business? Um, how has that gone? seems like you're pretty happy with what you're doing.
2: I would do it all over again. So, um, I love what I do. It's, um, a big part of who I am and, you know, not everybody will feel that way. I feel really lucky to feel that way. Um, the hard part is, is that when you're the owner, the buck stops with you. So, you know, if something happens, you know, you're on the line and, When we went through the pandemic and everything was shutting down in 2020, that was definitely a really challenging time as a small business owner in healthcare, because I didn't have a team of people, I didn't work for a big organization, you know, it was extremely difficult. um, uh, Very anxiety producing, scary, all the things. if Medicare screws up, like one time they classified all of our claims in as we were cardiologists, so they all got denied. So I'm like, well, thanks a lot. So, you know, we had nothing to do with that, but that dried up our cash flow for a while. You know, those things happen. And so it can be very stressful. And then especially as you've hired employees and other people are depending on you for their livelihood there's a there's pressure there you know so you just you're responsible for things that maybe you're not in a regular setting and then in a regular setting too you know you don't get to be as creative so that there's a huge pro to have your own business with that and then also you you know you have a you you know it's like they say entrepreneurs will work 80 hours a week so we don't have to work 40 hours a week for somebody else um and it's sort of like that, but you do get to pick and choose what you want to do. And I and really enjoy that. And then I also love working with the therapists because they're all out there, you know, doing really creative stuff too. And I finally, I, I get to mentor them and that I love that. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of pros and cons.
1: Gotcha. And so other than reaching out to you directly, um, are there things that people that are interested in, in, um, starting their own business, uh, Places that you would recommend they go, websites, organizations that you think mm-hmm. would be useful for them to to learn about.
2: Yeah, I would definitely go if you're going to do Medicare. You know, definitely go to the CMS website, start poking around that. You know, sure. make you want to go to sleep, but um, get <laughs> educated. but like I said, the Small Business Development Center in your community. I would check out the Better Business Bureau too, or even your local Chamber of Commerce, and just get to know your community. There are um, some business coaches out there. And I would recommend getting some sort of mentorship going. Um, One of the mentors that I had, though, I mean, he was a physician that I worked with here in town, it doesn't have to be another OT in business, it can be somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, And get on those Facebook groups, start learning what's going on in the industry, and then just start asking a lot of questions. And then networking groups too, if you have any networking groups in your area or virtually, I would get involved with those. And then just start, you know, even just go to the library and pick up some books, um, start learning some different things. We have to remember that even though a lot of people have a master's or a PhD in occupational therapy, we are not business people. So typically so we have to educate ourselves and if you feel like you're you know not knowledgeable enough you can learn and so that's just what it takes is learning um so those are those are some things I would recommend and then there's some good webinars out there too um that you can take but yeah I just would start chipping away or having some goals of what you want to get done or what you want to learn
1: there you go that was the occupational therapist and you speaking at the end get the get the goal directed right.
2: get your goals in there make sure they're measurable <laughs> that's
1: it <laughs> well Krista thanks so much I've really enjoyed our conversation and I uh, appreciate your time today
2: yeah thank you and there actually is one other organization too um, if you're interested in driving because we talked about that is to go to ADED and that's capital A D E D you can look that up and check that out we definitely need some OTs in that space and so that would also be an organization if you're looking for a private business that you would likely do quite well (laughs) because there's not enough.
1: Thanks so much. Appreciate it and uh, have a great day.